Hello, welcome to Curious Objects. I'm Ben Miller. The years following World War I were turbulent ones for the evolution of British art. Uh, the chaos and horror of the war drove some artists toward absurdist movements like Surrealism and Dada, while others abandoned the um, lionization of, of industry and progress that had characterized the pre-war years. Then the Great Depression only brought further anxiety and drove some artists toward escapism and a return to classical and representational painting. Uh, but at the same time, important social and, and cultural changes were happening across the UK. You know, the war had brought huge numbers of women into the workforce. Uh, women won the right to vote beginning in 1918 and uh, including all women by 1928. Um, gender and, and sexual norms were under fresh examination. Um, and also, you know, fascist uh, sentiment was was on the rise across Europe um, at, at the same time. It was in this context, right around 1930, that um, two women artists, uh, Jessica Dismore and Agnes Miller Parker, set to work on the paintings that we'll be discussing today. Um, these two paintings are featured at the Fine Art Society, uh, which is celebrating the reopening of their London gallery with a double exhibition occurring simultaneously in their spaces in London and Edinburgh. Here with me to figure out what these uh, paintings are all about are Emily Walsh, uh, Group Managing Director of the Fine Art Society in Edinburgh, and Rowena Morgan-Cox, Managing Director of the Fine Arts Society London. Hello, Emily and Rowena. Hello. Hello. So, uh, Emily, I want to start with the painting by Agnes Miller Parker, um, which is at the Edinburgh Gallery and, and which bears the curious title, The Uncivilized Cat. Um, and listeners, you can see uh, pictures of, of both of these uh, paintings online at uh, the magazine antiques.com and also at um, thefineartsociety.com. Um, but uh, Emily, can you just start off by telling us what exactly is um, depicted in this painting? Of, co of course, there's a cat uh, who, who is making quite a ruckus. Yes, yeah, so at first appearance, it's quite an innocent-looking still life. A black cat with very green eyes has landed upon an open book, uh, the book on closer inspection is by Marie Stopes and is Love's Creation, which was published in 1928, two years before this painting was made. Uh, Love's Creation was a book that explored the debates around females uh, changing sexuality and independence and a lot of the, the conversations that Marie Stopes had had over the previous decade. Um, behind this book is the, a green spine of a book that, just visible, can be seen uh, the book uh, Goodbye to All That by Robert Graves, which was uh, an autobiography that described the passing of an old order following the First World War. And then to the right of the cat is a toppled over vase of colour lilies and a maquette of the goddess Venus, and the story goes that when Venus saw Calla Lilies, she was so overwrought with jealousy that she um, bestowed a yellow pistol upon the lily. Um, and within the context of this picture, it suggests there's a lust and sexuality that women were not allowed to display or indeed possibly feel. Um, behind it, there is a bunch of uh, daffodils and, and beyond that, a fast car zooming off into the distance. And how would you describe the um, the style and, and manner of painting? Well, 
When uh, Agnes Miller Parker moved to London in 1920 with her husband, William McCants, and they became involved with the Vorticist uh, movement, which is a London group uh, active throughout the 1920s. And it displays some of the uh, technique and, and styles of that group. The artist William Roberts lived with them briefly in their Earl's Court flat, and he was a great influence over her paintings in this decade, and, and that sort of sculptural volumetric um, stylization of everything in the picture, it, it comes from him. Yeah, so what are they, what would you say are the characteristics of, of um, that uh, method of painting? Uh, what's what's sort of distinctive and recognisable about it? It's 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 highly stylized, quite a sort of schematic in a way. Um, I mean, she painted in tempera, which is quite unusual. And in fact, the there there are very few examples of her work from from this decade. Uh, she went on to be better known as a wood engraver in the subsequent years. Um, but it's, it's very stylistic. I mean, it's, it has also hints of the sort of Art Deco movement. Um, so it's quite sort of flattened um, mm. and, and perfect in, in its presentation. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the cat, uh, which is really, um, you know, quite a, a visually interesting figure in this picture in, in terms of the way it's posed and, and shaped, um, you know, it occupies maybe a, a quarter of the frame. Um, so it, it really does dominate the picture. Why? Why a cat? Why is? Why did she decide to to uh, paint a, essentially a, a portrait of a cat? Um, Agnes and and her husband uh, William McCants uh, were very keen cat lovers and owned many cats. And you'll see in the work that she did subsequently that they often feature either as part of a. Um, a tale that she's retelling, or one of her best-known wood engravings is a, a picture of a cat called The Challenge. Um, cats were seem to be very much a part of their life. And so there are, you know, you've described a number of um, the uh, the sort of objects um, featured in, in the scene. Um, there's also a, a pair of uh, eyeglasses. There's a a water glass that's been tipped over. Um, you know, the, the, the cat is clearly uh, just uh, making a nuisance of itself, sort of tearing the whole scene apart. Um, but it, it seems that a number of these objects are um, are quite concretely symbolic, um, and, and many of them symbolic around, uh, as you've described it, ideas having to do with um, sexuality, femininity, um, is this uh, a um, primarily a symbolic painting, um, or, or how, you know, what, how would you describe um, uh, Miller Parker's sort of intentions as best as you can uh, um, derive them? Well, I suppose this the interwar period was a, change, a, a period of great change and, and shift, anyway. I think looking at Miller Parker as an individual, she made a very uh, remarkable decision in 1918 to marry William McCants, who was a conscientious objector. And in fact, they married a year before he was released from his work camp. This would have come with a high level of social opprobrium, but it also suggests that she was on side with with his decision to do that um, and and to go along with it. Later on in their marriage, she, in personal correspondence, 
describes how sick, sick of his um, laziness and selfishness he, she is. And she decides in 1955 to leave him, not the other way around, mm. and then goes on to divorce in the 60s. And again, this is a time when you know, the, the housewife still very much existed. And, and this picture, for me, is a rejection of all the sort of Victorian housewife tropes of being the angel of the house, which, although there may be Victorian, existed right into the 20th century and to some level today. Um, so she, she's making, in my opinion, it's a decision, decision to stand away from all of that um, and, and show her independence both per- personally and professionally. You, you mentioned um, the motor car in the background. You can sort of see it in the, the uh, upper left corner of the painting through a, an open window. Um, what do you make of that? It, it, it sort of reminds me of the, uh, you know, the Italian futurists of, of some years earlier. Um, why, why do you think that's included? Well, I suppose the vorticists were interested in industry and the machine age, and maybe it's a reference to that. Perhaps one could also read something more phallic into it. Um, it also has the look of, of, of a toy car as well as perhaps possibly a racing car of the time. All right. Um, I, I want to bring in our second painting. Um, and th- this one is uh, at the London Gallery. Um, the, the title is Mother and Child. Um, and it, it was made by Jessica Dismore. Um, uh, you, you've dated it uh, circa 1932. Um, so, uh, Rowena, can you, can you tell us um, what does this uh, what does this painting show? Um, so, the painting is called Mother and Child, um, as you say, and it's painted at a um, similar date to the Parker painting. But um, even though Jessica Dismore was very involved with the Vorticis movement as well, and in fact she was one of only two women artists to sign the Vorticis Manifesto, this painting is from a period um, kind of much after that, really, um, again, as you'd mentioned earlier, she, because of, as a reaction to the war, um, she's moving towards figuration away from the abstraction of the, her kind of earlier work. Um, and, and this is really, she goes back to abstraction, but this is really her kind of figurative period. Unlike the painting that Emily was describing, there isn't um, a lot of kind of Uh, symbols to unpick in this image but I think it's definitely worth a second look Um, obviously there are expectations of a mother and child um, image of something very um, sentimental and um, kind of verging on on the kind of twee but this image on second look is very different from that. You've got an incredibly strong um, uh, looking mother here. She's got a very uh, kind of um, defined jaw and you can even see the musculature in her arm and her kind of solid chest as she kind of holds the baby towards her. And equally on the other side, you've got a child that... um, kind of seems realistic and to have an agency of its own so she's really kind of um scrapping all of the uh classic 
virgin and um, and baby Jesus imagery that one might expect mm-hmm. in, in a picture of a mother and child. Um, she she she's doing something different and new. Um, I think with this work, um, in a similar way to kind of Parker reinventing re- reinventing a still life. Um, and that's why we had wanted to kind of draw a comparison between these two artists, not only mm. because of their associations, yeah. say with the uh, Vorticis, um, but also as women artists, I guess, creating a new visual language um, that is specifically female, or at least coming from a kind of female perspective and that is recognizing a woman and her child to be to kind of work outside of um convention and stereotypes um as Dismore herself did uh in fact it's interesting that Dismore didn't um uh, didn't want children from a very early age she was quite mm. definitive about that and also um, uh, didn't get married and d- aside from a kind of speculative relationship with Wyndham Lewis um, that there's slight disagreement on from friends and various sources didn't have to ha- didn't have any other kind of romantic or sexual relationship that was really significant interesting so so um just for a moment to go back to the the um, style of of the painting, um, you, you've uh, sort of drawn some comparisons with the Miller Parker picture, but um, visually, you know, they're they're quite different. Um, you know, in, in in this case, the mother and, and the child fill the entire frame. Um, there really is very little else to to look at aside from the two of them. Um, you know, there's there's no field full of uh, symbolic objects um uh, but they're also uh, just painted in a in a very uh, different manner um you know there's none of the the flattening the sort of angularity uh, they're they're um uh, much more uh, organic um uh, sort of creatures so it's it's differences from the uncivilized cat uh, predominantly as you say in the style of the painting in the uncivilized cat there's a very slick stylization that emily was talking about that that kind of seems close to to the the art deco movement as well as the kind of vortices influences um that miller parker had but with jessica dismore um hers is slightly more kind of impressionistic she's quite clearly looked at pontalism the 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 surface of the picture is made up with lots of kind of small stabbing brush strokes um which you can see obviously in, even in an image um online but definitely in the flesh each mm. brush stroke is very much defined it's very muted colors which she she actually really painted with muted colours all the way through her career, including in her um, in her kind of abstract earlier period and later period. I think that they're the colours that um, she uses, which I guess makes it more um, su- 
not subtle is probably the wrong word, but it's definitely understated as compared with um, Miller Parker's painting. Um, it's there's something soft and gentle about it, which maybe works with uh, the theme of mother and child, and that's why it needs um, you to think about it more carefully to kind of unravel, I think, what it's actually saying about the relationship between the two figures. You mentioned also that um, very tight cropping around the figures. There's there's kind of nothing else. There's a sense of maybe a curtain in the background. They might be standing in front of a window, for instance. But it's it kind of could be verging on um, on slightly claustrophobic in its um, mm. in its kind of structure. Um, which I hope I'm not reading too much into it. It's interesting because um, Dismore had uh, a slightly frustrated relationship with her mother, who for a very long time was um, was unwell and an invalid, um, and who uh, Dismore complained of being kind of suffocatingly loving. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I get you. You could, and it might be too much, read something of that in, into this work, partly because um, uh, because of the that very um, tight focus on the two figures. Right, and well, and the figures aren't identified, correct? Uh, in other words, we we don't know uh, who this mother and child might uh, might have been, or whether they might even have existed at all. As far I know, as far as far as we know, they hadn't been identified. I mean, there may well be um, kind of guesses as to who they were, but I think even you know the the title of the painting um, suggests trying to say something generic, but actually um, rather than the predictable imagery of a mother and child she's actually saying something much more modern in some way it kind of anticipates the um strong woman figure that we start to see in kind of wartime propaganda as we get into to the second world war but actually unfortunately jessica dismal didn't um kind of live that long to see that but it but it has a sense of that. You're kind, you can imagine the muscular arm of the We Can Do It girls poster from America mm-hmm. in the 1940s. Um, uh, in, in, this, um, in this image. Um, but I think really she's just being realistic about, um, about womanhood um, rather than, uh, as I say, kind of predictable. Yeah. Um, so, uh, with respect to to both of these pictures, um, what what can you tell me um, about uh, how they were received um, in, in their time? I think Emily might um, say something similar about the Miller Parker, but we have very little information specifically um, about how this picture. Uh, was received at the time I wish that I could um, I could say more to that but um, just more generally about Dismore in this period so between 1929 and 1934 she contributed 
26 of these more figurative paintings to the London group um, exhibition circle that she was a member of. Um, and I think uh, it's, it's probable that this work um, was, was part of, uh, part of that group of, um, group of pictures. And then more recently, it both has been exhibited at the Fine Arts Society and also at Pallant House Gallery. It was included in the Radical Women exhibition, which was Jessica Dismore and her contemporaries. Uh, and that was at the end of last year and earlier this year. And, and Emily, what about the um, Miller Parker picture? Do, do we know anything about um, how, how it was received? We don't. And in fact, it's a picture that we acquired recently from Provincial Auction House um, in the UK. And there was no, apart from an attribution, it didn't have a title with it. And the investigation of the picture really has taken place since we received it. So we have nothing to know about its, its history, I'm afraid. Um, I think in general of Park, Miller Parker's work and how it was received, there is very little known. Um, and this may be in part due to the fact that she continued to work throughout the time. She, from the time she was in, moved after she'd moved to London from Scotland, she was teaching in schools. And although her husband did a little bit of work in terms of lecturing and he was an art critic at The Spectator, uh, she was the breadwinner and her painting w- would take place at night and therefore mm. be very part-time. And he was able to fulfil his requirements as an artist much better and really explore his, his style and, and what, he was, what he was doing. And then from 1930, when her and her husband moved to Wales to the Gregona uh, Press in Paris, he was the instructor, as it were, and, and coordinated what she did. Um, and she worked very much then to commissioned work for to illustrate books. Um, so although she, they were highly praised at the time, but she there's probably more record of, of how her work as a book illustrator and wood engraver uh, than than as a painter during the 1920s. Right. Well, so we've we've talked a little about um, the changing circumstances of, of women around this period, um, but. Um, Flesh this this out a little more for me. Um, you know what what really was it like to to be a woman artist and to be working as a as a woman artist in in the UK at this time. Well, I think if I can jump into this one because it's interesting what Emily just said about Parker being um, the the breadwinner in her relationship with her husband. And in Jessica Dismore's case, um, she was uh, one of five girls um, uh, and her father was a businessman. And they were afforded, I think, an incredible amount of uh, space and uh, kind of flexibility to um, really work on their creative talents. I think a lot more than would be afforded other um women at this time and the other advantage or disadvantage for Dismore is that she um, uh, whilst her father was alive and she was working as, as an artist actually lived off um, uh, a kind of money that he gave her and then after his death um, she inherited money from him although it was not as much as she was hoping for so she was actually kind of wealthy enough 
um, independently of her artwork and having to sell her artwork, although I know that there have been in letters her mentioning in the later years her her kind of um, efforts to actually make work to sell. Um, but really, she she was, as well as an artist, a supporter of the arts. I know that part of her troubled relationship with Wyndham Lewis is because he would often push her to purchase pictures from him for her own collection as a way of supporting him. And I think that um, she would have put um, money into, uh, um, I think, potentially blast um, the the magazine, The Vortices Publish, and I guess some of the other exhibiting circles that she was involved in. Um, I, I also slightly think it was a disadvantage for her because although she had the freedom to work on her creative pursuits and and develop her art, um, it also means that I guess you're slightly taken less seriously as an artist because she hasn't had to suffer in that kind of... Um, uh, again, a stereotype of uh, artistic identity for her art. You know, it's it, it's it's kind of come to her more easily because she's been able to afford to live anyway without being reliant on the artwork. And I think that kind of image of the struggling artist is actually really important, and that she she cannot um, ever. Um, be identify as that kind of traditional struggling modern artist um, and I think the other thing is that although she was involved in just about every um, interesting exhibiting circle um, from the Rebel Arts Centre um, to the Vortices um, uh, to the London group and the Seven and Five Society later on uh, she's just been slightly written out of history um, and and I think that's the case for lots of reasons um, uh, not least because of um, the kind of male historians take on 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 British art history over the years We'll be back with the Fine Art Society in just a moment. If you're enjoying the podcast, please take a second to subscribe on your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a rating. This helps others find Curious Objects. As you know, Curious Objects is brought to you by the magazine Antiques, the publication of record in the world of fine and decorative arts for almost 100 years. Check out themagazineantiques.com, where new and archival stories are uploaded daily, as well as the magazine's social media channels, where you'll find the Antique of the Day, selected by editor-at-large Glenn Adams like what you see, then subscribe and get the November-December issue of the magazine Antiques straight to your mailbox. Well, so tell me more about this. Um, so, you know, uh, in the case of both these pictures, you know, we, we, we don't know exactly um, uh, how people reacted to them at the time, but um, you are showing both of them now. Uh, they're both known at this point. Um, 
they're, they uh, both clearly belong in the canon of, of British art. Um, how did that come to, to be? Uh, how did they uh, earn, earn their place? Um, it, these paintings particularly, but also um, these two artists, uh, when did they sort of break onto the, the stage of, of recognition? I think Milla Parker, because of her work as a book illustrator, had that. So it was an acceptable female uh, profession, um, possibly even one that you might be allowed to do married and with have, and children. Milla Parker and McCann's didn't have children, and I don't know whether that was a choice or, or because they couldn't. Um, but in most female artists' cases, upon having children, they needed to stop, either stop teaching, they were required to step down from their posts, um, or they just simply didn't have the time and the day to raise a family, keep a house and, and paint as well. But this wasn't the case for Miller Parker. She was able to, but as I said, she, she continued to be the breadwinner in her relationship. Um, but I think she she has always, because of, because of the wood engraving and the book illustration, has always been well known. And I think latterly her her oils on or tempera even have been um, admired, partly because they have struck a sort of accord with the fashions of the time. I think for the last twenty years that this very stylized nineteen twenties look is become increasingly um, fashionable. And of course, in recent years, female painters have, have started to rise up and, and have a higher value uh, because they're by a woman. But I think Parker has always, has, has always had some sort of a name because of the book illustration. I think um, I'll just jump in here. For in, in Dismore's uh, case, it, it's slightly different and I think um, it's made difficult because she committed suicide a few days before um, uh, Germany, I think, invaded Poland um, and war was declared in Britain. Um, I think because of her, she, she was 54, but because of, I think her life was cut short and because of the circumstances of her death, there seems to be less interest um, in the years following her death to pull together a retrospective, which is is often a kind of traditional way of um, uh, either the executors of the will, uh, the family, or I guess artist circles in celebrating the life of an artist. And, and really she slightly falls out of art history from, from that point onwards. Um, and actually, I think in in this case, uh, having this work in our opening exhibition um, is is actually because of the work that the Fine Arts Society has done in its history to help um, kind of resurrect the interest in artists who have often been overlooked, and it's been a theme at, uh, at the very least since the um, kind of late 1960s uh, that we have done work and particularly well with women artists to um, gather interest around them again um, by holding exhibitions. Some, some of the artists we, we had um, shown in their lifetime, for instance, one, another one of the pictures in the show is a picture by Doris Zinkhuizen, again from around the same period, 1934, 
And actually, the Fine Arts Society did an exhibition of her works in 1949 and then continued to show her, her work in, in the kind of second half of the 20th century, and, and we still do today. In Dismore's case, it wasn't until around um, an exhibition that we did in, in 2000 that we kind of, that rediscovery um, started. And then, as I mentioned earlier, more recently, this picture was shown at the Pallant House Gallery exhibition in Chichester, which was, it, it, had, it had Jessica Dismore as, as the kind of central thread running throughout the exhibition, but actually it was kind of commenting more um, widely on, on radical women artists and, and trying to um, either to kind of uh, rehabilitate these people's kind of careers and works in, in the eyes of the general public um, or to just cement interest that was already there and gathering slowly as had been the case with, with Jessica Dismore and I think hence why she was the, um, the kind of central um, uh, person in that exhibition. But again, as I'd kind of mentioned earlier, it's it's very surprising aside the kind of suicide aside um that that she isn't kind of recognized more um compared with her male counterparts because actually even in the the later years of her life she was still really involved with some key artists of the period i mean being elected to both the London group and the Seven and Five Society. You know, the Seven and Five Society was um, uh, started by Paul Nash. It involved artists including Ben Nicholson and Barbara Hepworth. Um, so, you know, she, she was always in the centre, in a sense, of the um, uh, British art movements of the time, and yet she's still been sidelined since her death and I think that's quite sad yeah well so how does that translate into um the sort of state of the market uh for for her works are there are there uh, interested and and de- dedicated collectors um you know specifically focused on on her works uh or works of of the type that she is creating I think there are lots more people who are generally interested in, in women artists of this period um, that you know this is this is one picture that sold in the exhibition that sold very quickly it sold before the show opened so I think that's a good sign yeah. but it also might be a sign of its kind of relative affordability compared to some of the other artworks um, in the show by male artists of the, working in the 20th century in Britain um, it's uh, yes it's kind of it's it's more it's at a more accessible price point um and i hope that you know if we continue to do work on her and we continue to support the market that 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 can grow but the other obviously issue is and particularly because of her um kind of early uh death um it means that there are fewer artworks available actually i I i'm not entirely sure whether it's because she destroyed them or um 
because they have just been lost due to disinterest, even of the family and people around her, that actually that it means that the kind of pool of works there to deal in are, 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 is relatively small compared to other people. I, I guess Emily said the same of Miller Parker, actually, and I think that can be damaging to um, the legacy of an artist after their death, particularly in terms of the art market. Yeah. It's an issue that arises with many female, with many women artists and, and was illustrated very clearly in a very good exhibition in the National Gallery Scotland um, a, few, a couple of years ago of uh, 20th century female artists. Um, and there were several rooms of them, but there were maybe only one or two examples per artist. And when the curator was asked why there weren't more, because it would have been nicer to have seen a room of, of paintings by one artist or a whole wall of them. And there simply weren't the numbers to, to pull enough, good enough work together. So even if a, a, some, some women artists would have stopped painting, but some may have continued, but the quality wasn't there either. Um, so I think that what, yeah, Romina, I would echo what Romina says, that the, in most cases there are very few examples to, to draw on. And you do need a critical mass if you're going to create a market, if you're talking about the commercial value of, of pictures. And although there is a far greater interest in, in women painters now than there ever has been, there's a huge amount to catch up in terms of their value. They, they still lag a, a quite a long way behind their male counterparts. Yeah. Well, and is, is, is that also um, true for, uh, for Miller Parker? I mean, he, Emily, earlier you suggested that her... Um, uh, sort of flattened and and angular style is uh, possibly um, you know a bit uh, more in vogue uh, or uh, you know a bit more um, uh, stylish, I guess for a for a modern uh, consumer. Um, do, do, does that lend uh, sort of more collectability to to her works, um, or, or are there even enough of hers to? To make a market, yes, I think there are very few um, to to draw on uh, to to create a market. But actually, yeah. I do think that it is true. I think of all artists that they will have their high points and their low points that are entirely dictated by fashion, and it doesn't matter whether you're a woman or a man. In that case, um, people's interior decor will change over the decades, and you're either in or you're out. Um, and this is a style that is in. So if listeners are interested in seeing these paintings in person, um, how can they do that? Both galleries are open. Uh, obviously, there are restrictions in place in the UK at the moment and, and slightly differing restrictions um, in Scotland to England. But uh, they are both available to be seen Monday to Friday in our galleries, Saturdays as well in, in Edinburgh. Um, and you can look on our website, which is www.thefineartsociety.com. Um, for some high-resolution images which you can zoom into and some further information on both these pictures and, and all the other pictures that are in the exhibitions. Excellent. Well, I, I, I hope that this helps to um, draw some attention to these artists, I, I have to say. I mean, both, uh, both pictures are quite thought-provoking. Um, have, uh, have we missed anything? I think something, I mean, it's suggested in with, with um, the Dismore it's suggested in my mentioning her suicide, but obviously she kind of suffered with um, her mental health throughout her lifetime. 
Um, mm-hmm. I wonder if that is particularly important. But on the other hand, you know, it's it's um, you want to kind of avoid reading that into every work because actually, I think this this picture represents a period when she really is working quite hard. Um, it it follows shortly um, after both the death of her mother and her sister in the same year um, but actually she she recovered um, uh, from from that and started a period of kind of real um, furious uh, energy um, and this is one of those paintings um, and I, I guess I guess there could be something in these very uh, fast drying short brushstrokes um that are very thinly applied to a gesso board which which is kind of reflective of that um that moment of excitement in her work um Mm. again uh and she has another one later on where she returns to abstract painting and kind of um works on those very very dedicatedly um and then equally she has periods where that little uh, little survives from that period either because she wasn't working because she was unwell or um uh because she she may well have even destroyed the works or as i said before the works might have been neglected and and lost but i think that's it really Gosh, I mean, I, yeah, I have to say, um, hearing about artists destroying their work is always uh, a bit heart-wrenching. Yeah, it is, yeah. isn't it? Although you've got the, the slightly more uh, cynical view nowadays with contemporary artists reducing the amount of pictures uh-huh. that go onto the market. <laughs> <laughs> That's a different argument. Yeah. Artificial scarcity. Something else for another day. Yeah. 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 There's, a, there's a balance, isn't there, between having too few pictures on the market and too many. Mm-hmm. Mm. I think, sadly, our artists have, are on the, on the too few side. Yeah, too few. Mm. I, I was just... Um, the other day, uh, reading a bit about um, this period in in uh, Brahms' life when he, you know, he he felt uh, eternally insignificant next to Beethoven, who was his his absolute idol, and this inferiority complex grew to such an extent that um, at a certain point he decided that nothing he had ever written or could write would ever be worthy. Uh, of Beethoven's example and so he started um, throwing his manuscripts in the fire um, just by the fistful and it was his wife actually (laughs) stepped in and intervened and and managed to save quite a bit of his work Um, but of course you know there are some unknown number of compositions of his that were uh, lost forever yeah it's very sad temperament (laughs) what is it i guess it's harold bloom who calls that the uh anxiety of influence (laughs) anyway it's not something (laughs) well thank you both so much i I really um had a a lot of fun with this uh i I hope you uh, got a little enjoyment out of it too Um, well thank you i hope you thanks for making it so straightforward yeah i hope you've got something good in there i I think so yeah (laughs) 
This episode was edited and produced by Sammy Delati. Our music is by Trap Rabbit, and I'm Ben Miller. <laughs>